Thank you for sharing scripture with us this morning, Matt. This morning, uh, after my sermon, we're actually going to have a baptism, uh, which is always exciting. Uh, Siv Hang Cloyd is going to be baptized today, and uh, I found out when she canceled a Cutco appointment with me, actually. So, uh, Siv, how many days did you sell Cutco? Like two? <laughs> uh, so, um, I'm super excited about it. Siv has, uh, she's counseled for Lorinda and I at camp the last couple of years, and it's been a pleasure to get to know her uh, and to see just what a remarkable individual she is. Um, she's tremendously encouraging uh, to the younger children that are out at camp. I think she's tremendously encouraging to uh, her fellow youth group members. She's encouraging to me. Every time I see Siv, uh, I am filled with, with joy just because she is a wonderful person. And uh, I'm excited that today she's going to put Christ on in baptism. And so that's something we get to look forward to at the end of the sermon. So I'm going to try and make it fairly quick this morning. Um, We're going through the Gospel of John, and we are approaching the end of the Gospel. Uh, The end of John's Gospel, I should say. Not the end of the Gospel. The Gospel continues for eternity. And what we've seen in Jesus, especially in this, this final week of his life, is a continual overturning of expectation. With his triumphal entry, he, he kind of makes a mockery of the Roman triumphal entry. We talked about the idea that, you know, you come in with a big parade that you've planned for yourself and all of your enemies marching behind you and all of the army behind them, and you glorify yourself and you look big and powerful. We talked a little bit about the moment in which Jesus washes the feet of the disciple who is about to betray him. And the way that, in fact, Jesus washes the feet, not just of one disciple who would betray him, but an entire roomful of disciples that will more or less abandon him. And this week, this morning, I want to talk about the way that Jesus now, in the moment of his betrayal, shows what true power looks like. Um, as As we have gone through this gospel, Jesus has used a phrase multiple times, and I think both Kyle and I have pointed out um, our frustration with the many English translations and the way that they handle this phrase. It's the word, I am. Jesus continually calls himself, I am. And there's a tendency, a a desire, because we are English speakers, to add something onto that, to, to say, I am this thing. Now, Jesus does it himself intentionally many times. I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life is one that we talked about last week. But this week, Jesus uses this phrase in a very powerful way, and I want to share it with you. I want us to to go back a little bit here. It says, then Jesus, knowing all that would happen to him, came forward and said to them, whom do you seek? This crowd of individuals carrying torches and swords, confronting him in what is considered a peaceful place, the Garden of Gethsemane. They knew that he would be there because Judas knew that he would be there because Jesus can't help but go and pray and meet with his disciples. Uh, John tells us that this was his custom when he was in the Jerusalem area. This is where he would go. Someone intimately familiar with Jesus' routine and pattern of life would know. What is Jesus going to do after this sacred and solemn moment in the upper room with his disciples? He's going to go out and pray with them. And it's here in the garden where they confront him that Jesus poses this question, whom 
do you seek? Jesus knows what's about to happen. We've been told this already. He knows what Judas has set his heart on. We know that Jesus has told us multiple times over the course of this gospel what he is going to do. And oftentimes it's in ways that are confusing to to the disciples. Maybe they think he's speaking metaphorically. Maybe they don't really understand exactly what he means when he says that the Son of Man must lay down his life. Or they uh, don't understand the idea of him being lifted up as the serpent was lifted up in the desert. Maybe they feel it's a little ambiguous. But to Jesus, it's very clear what is about to happen. And he steps forward into this moment, knowing full well what is about to happen. I find it interesting because John uses this, I think, as a contrast to chapter 6, verse 15, where what we see is this moment where the whole crowd wants to make him king, and it says, perceiving that they were about to come and take him by force, it shouldn't say B-U-Y, but by force, To make him king, Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. It's actually several times in the Gospel of John where people want to thrust power on Jesus or perceived power on Jesus, and he makes himself scarce. But it's here in the moment where they're about to arrest him, where they're about to carry him off for a trial, where they are about to crucify him, that Jesus steps forward. Over and over again, Jesus retreats as people want to make him king or elevate him by their own terms and their own means. But in his betrayal, he steps forward. And he asks that question, whom do you seek? And the response, of course, is we're looking for Jesus of Nazareth. And Jesus said to them, I am, forget the he, I am Judas, who betrayed him, was standing with them. When Jesus said to them, I am, forget the he, they drew back and fell to the ground. You know, there are certain voices and names that draw strong associations. Uh, I've been doing this game with Emma in the back seat of my car. She's, you know, riding back there, and we're listening to music, and I've got a playlist of, like, uh, 1970s rock, and we're listening to it, and I'll ask her, who is it? And she's getting really good at it. But the one that she never has any trouble with whatsoever is Bob Dylan. Because Bob Dylan, I don't, I don't know if you know this, Bob Dylan's got kind of a funny-sounding voice. He was told specifically he'd never be successful as a singer because his voice was too nasally and, and peculiar. And yet, you know, now he's Bob Dylan, and you can pick any song that's a Bob Dylan song out on the radio. And so we'll be sitting in the car, a song she's never heard before, and she pipes up, Bob Dylan! I'm like, I didn't even ask her this time, but she knew. Certain voices have that effect on us. We recognize them immediately. Um, As a baseball fan, not as a fan of the Dodgers, I can tell you this, uh, because I'm a Giants fan and the Dodgers are mud. (laughs) I apologize if I offend anyone this morning, but I've got to speak the truth, okay? Um, The longest-running sports announcer in history... Vin Scully, was the the well-known voice of Dodgers broadcasts for decades. He retired at 88 years old. In fact, there is only one other person that has a longer tenure in any position within the Dodgers organization, and he doesn't matter because he's not Vin Scully. When you hear Vin Scully's voice, you know it is time for baseball. 
as a Giants fan, for me, it's, it's Mike and Dwayne. Uh, they, I hear their voices. In fact, when we watch Giants games at, uh, at home, when we have one of our regulars out, my kids immediately notice. They're like, those aren't our guys. I'm like, you're right, they're not our guys. Voices have power. We associate specific voices with specific events. We also associate specific names with ideas. All I have to say is Martin Luther King Jr. And there are a flood of things that pour into your mind. Great speeches, specific historical events. If I bring up Abraham Lincoln, it's probably very much the same. You, you don't know his voice, but you know his name, and by his name, you know his works. And I believe in this moment, the combination of the voice of Jesus and the name that he shares are powerful reminders to the people who have come to see him. Now, keep in mind, the individuals who have come to arrest Jesus are a strange mix of people. There's some, some Roman guards there. There are some Jewish uh, officials. They, they are an odd crowd. Not every one of them was raised knowing what I am means. In fact, uh, it's, just, it's a single word in the Greek. It's amy. One word Jesus speaks Now, he probably spoke it in Aramaic, unless he was being polite to the Roman citizens that were there and using their own language. It's just one word, but it's powerful enough to bowl them over. I want you to think about that for just a moment. Loaded in that one word is the identity of God. This is how God chooses to identify himself in the Old Testament. It is his name. It is who he is. I am. When Moses asks, who do I tell them sent me? God says, I am. And associated with that name are all the most significant moments in history, including history itself. This is the name of the one who spoke the universe into existence, the name of the one with the voice of power. By his word, he creates. And in identifying himself, again, this this mob, this angry group, is pushed back. I think about uh, what Ben had preached a little while back, this, this idea that the voice of Jesus was so powerful that when Jesus calls Lazarus out of the tomb, he does it by name out of maybe this, this fear that like you just say, hey, come out of the tomb, and everyone in there decides it's their time to rise because that's what Jesus is ultimately going to do, right? He's going to call all of us out of the tomb. We are all going to rise, and we're all going to face that final day. And so Jesus uses it with like a laser sight. Not talking to the rest of you. Lazarus, come out of the tomb. I think John has a very clear idea of the power of the voice and name that Jesus bears. 
And I don't want to dwell on this too long. I don't want to make too fine a point of it. But the most interesting thing to me is the difference in the way that Jesus responds to this group and the way his disciples respond to this group. I want to take a look at these next couple of slides here, and I just want us to think about what it is that's being said. Skip over those there. So he, he asked them again, who do you seek? And now Jesus has maybe restrained himself a little bit here. It says, and they said, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus answered, I told you that I am. So if you seek me, let these men go. This was to fulfill the word that he had spoken. Of those whom you gave me, I have lost not one. So you have this moment. Jesus steps forward into the moment of betrayal steps forward into the moment of his arrest, the moment that will begin what is the, the real work of his life, the moment that begins the redemption of humanity, unashamedly, in the full power of his voice and his name. And then he restrains himself. And he does it for the benefit, again, of the men who are about to abandon him. This was to fulfill the word that he had spoken, as we mentioned last week, of those whom you gave me, I have lost not one. Jesus, in great restraint, puts his power on hold so he can be taken into custody for the benefit of his betrayers. But Simon... In your English translations say, then Simon Peter. It's actually more like, then Simon, yeah, the guy we've been calling Peter. Having a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's servant and cut off his right ear. The servant's name was Malchus. So Jesus said to Peter, put your sword into its sheath. Shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given me? Now, I want you to think about these two images that we have here. Notice, you know, when John calls Peter... Simon. I think there's a point he's trying to make. Um, there's two Peters at play here. There is Simon, who's impetuous and violent and maybe a little bit headstrong, maybe too headstrong for his own good. He is unrestrained. In the Greek, again, maybe in parentheses here or a hyphen to make sure that we remember that Simon is Peter, he then says Peter, but not behaving as the Peter that we would expect the Peter that the church has come to know by the time of the writing of John's gospel. Reaches in, draws his sword, and strikes off an ear. Which is both terrifying and also a little funny, because if you're aiming for somebody and all you get is the ear, and it doesn't seem as though that individual is really expecting this to happen, maybe it's a little play on Peter's impotent rage here. Like, uh, the best you could do is an ear? All of Peter's passion, all of his fury, his indignation in this swipe of a sword, and the result is a cut-off ear. Now, one of the other Gospels notes that there is uh, the healing of that ear, that it's, it's returned to the state it was before. Jesus, on the other hand, with no rage... lessens himself. 
the one with the voice and the name steps back, not steps back, steps forward, sorry, into the moment of trial. And I think that there's a play here for us to see unfolding. I think what we see in Peter, Simon Peter, and what we see in Jesus is how we are and how we're called to be. Because I think oftentimes when we, when we see Jesus being attacked in our culture, or Jesus' people being attacked in our culture, or the, the individuals that are associated with the church in our culture being attacked, being confronted, being mistreated, our first tendency is to get a little violent, to get a little bit of rage, to feel it rise up inside of us and lash out with the sword to strike someone's head off. And of course, when we do that, all we get is the ear. And Jesus' response to Peter is, haven't you been watching what's been unfolding here? Don't you think I'm ready for this? Of course, we can go to all the other Gospels and we can see the places where Jesus has told them exactly what a follower of Christ should expect. You will be persecuted and you'll be blessed for it. I am your master. Don't you think that if they mistreat me, they're going to mistreat you? Over and over and over again, Jesus is constantly telling us, look, the expected outcome for you is difficulty and trial. And I'm going to show you what that looks like. How do you respond to a group of people that have come to arrest you, to place you in chains, to mistreat you, to abuse you, potentially even to be put to death? You do it with the name. You boldly proclaim the identity of the God that we serve. We don't face adversity with the sword. We face adversity with the name of Christ. We face adversity with the the belief that the power that we wield is not in our arms or in our, our legs to run or in anything else that we've been given, but the name of Christ. This is what Jesus faces the confrontation with. This is his power. This is his tool. This is the way that he goes to the cross. We've struggled in Western culture with this, uh, this idea that God wields two swords. He wields the sword of government and he wields the sword of the church. This is sort of a, an Augustinian idea of how God works that God will utilize the church in one way and he'll utilize government in the other. And I do think that there is something to be said about the idea that God does work even through the human institutions towards the ultimate success of the plan of the gospel for all of humanity, the work that God is doing in the world for the world. But God works very differently in his church than he does in the world. And we are called to take up the name take up the word, to use that as our only and greatest defense of the one that we follow, because that's what he does. That is the way that he faces trial and tribulation, not by lopping off limbs, but by speaking his name, by identifying boldly who he is. And in doing so, He protects those who are about to betray him. 
They get to witness this. And it's not just the protection from the mob. It is perhaps the protection from the false ideas about what the church is going to be. It's protecting them from thinking that they will become a violent revolution that will go out and overthrow the government, that will stand as a big, powerful entity in this world with with the strength of the world. If you look at Scripture over and over and over again, it's when systems rely on worldly strength that they collapse. It's when the Israelite people make uh, treaties with the foreign nations that God says, you have stopped relying on the name, I am, and started relying on the powers of this world. The gospel of John is constantly putting Jesus into conflict with the way that humanity thinks about the way things are done. But it doesn't stop in the gospel of John. The book of Revelation is very much an image of the kingdom of heaven against the powers and principalities of this world. The systems and ways in which the world wields power. And we are called to live by the name, not by the sword. I've become tremendously convicted about this over the last several years as I come back and I read John over and over again, as I I read uh, the, the church fathers and the way in which they understood what was happening to them under the great persecutions of the church in the early days of the church. When the church flourished and grew to such a point that it was undeniably the greatest power in the world, although it had no military of its own. This morning, I want to encourage you with this. There is no power that we need aside from the name of the one we follow. There is no voice we need to listen to aside from the voice of the God who spoke us into existence. And if we feel the temptation to take up the sword or to live by some other voice, we need to call back to this moment in which Jesus protects his disciples from that temptation, where he even goes so far as to condemn the violence that one has committed. This, to me, is a pivotal moment in understanding the crucifixion, in understanding it not as the greatest tragedy of all history in which God is crucified by his creation, but the moment in which God, full of power, The great I am says, I will lay down my life for you, even as you would take it. Are we willing to do the same? What do we believe we're defending? And do we believe in defending it on the terms that he has given to us? Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, as we approach in John the the crucifixion and the resurrection, help us to have clarity on the beauty of what you have done for us, even as the temptation is to think about what we have done to you. While both of those images are important, Father, the one that we should be relying on is the power of that is invested in the one who bears the name. 
in the voice of the one who calls his sheep, in the one who was there from the beginning. Help us to see his witness to what true power looks like. And help us to lay down our swords and take up the name. It's all this that we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. As I told you at the beginning of the sermon, we have a baptism this morning. But I want to let you know that's good news if you want to be baptized and you've not already told us because that means the water is already ready. And you have Civ to thank for that. If you are tired of relying on the systems of this world and the ways in which they wield power, if you want to take up the name of Christ, if you want to listen to the voice that will lead you, we're offering that to you this morning. You can be baptized. You can participate in that name. You can wear it for all of eternity. If there are other needs that you have this morning, if you're hurting, if you are lonely, if you are experiencing uh, some sort of illness or frustration, we want to be able to walk alongside you in that. We believe that's what Jesus would do. That by the power of his name and his voice, he would provide you comfort. He would provide you healing. That he would provide you peace. And so if, if there's any need you have of the church this morning, I'm going to invite you to, to uh, this morning, and this morning only come and sit on the front row here instead of meeting me in the back because Siv's going to go ahead and come up and we're going <clears> to <throat> take her confession as, uh, as we do. Uh, be prepared to sing uh, because Jeff's going to invite us to that in just a moment. So Siv, come on up. I didn't tell her she should sit on the front row. This is all my fault, the awkward silence that I'm going to fill because I'm uncomfortable with awkward silence. Right over here, Ziv. She's only, this is her first time doing this, so she's, she's an amateur at this. That's okay. <clears throat> Siv, this morning, I want to take your